Podcast. We are very happy to have you with us, and by we, we mean the royal we. Points to all of you who knew that song from our friends at Silver Sun Pickups, the royal we. Bahaha. Yes, um, it's relevant because we're going to talk about Mary Queen of Scots today. Yes, and Princess oh. Sabrina is here today. Princess Sabrina is here. I'm Christy Lemire. <laughs> I'm Alonzo Duralde. I'm Matt Ashby, and uh, lying on the floor here, uh, sometimes wagging your tail, the Princess of Pooptopia, uh, Sabrina. So if you hear if you hear thumping, it's because her tail is happy. It's because she wants tummy love. She's shameless. <laughs> We've got a really really busy show for you guys today. We've got a ton of movies. Um, you know, want to be awards contenders. It is December after all, oh, yeah. and so the things that want awards from you are making their way to theaters. But we also have some movie news for you. We'll start out with that. Um, Kevin Hart. Was going to host the Oscars, and then he wasn't. Alonzo, will you fill us in on this? Oh, boy. Who vets this stuff? Okay, so, yeah. So, Kevin Hart was announced as the host of the Oscars. Uh, and then very quickly, people started uh, pulling up his tweets from 2010, 2011 that included the F word, talked about how he would like want to smack his son for playing with dolls because that's gay, um, just sort of weirdly dumb homophobic stuff. And Hart's response, rather than to apologize, was basically like, Ugh, why are you being so negative? I've evolved as a person, um, without actually saying, I, you you know, I was what I said was stupid. He was like, oh, I've addressed that before. So he tried to sort of take this road of like, I'm not apologizing for anything. And the academy was like, Well, you are going to apologize for this, or we're going to fire you. And he goes, Fine, then fire me. And so they fired him. Uh, so within a day, he was no longer hosting the Academy Awards. And then he did uh, tweet an apology to the LGBTQ community. Um, for the tweets, uh, not significantly for a Get Hard, which was only three years ago. Unless uh, we one long gay panic which was joke. yes, it was. That, um, that movie was the angriest I'd ever seen Gray Drake about a movie. Oh, she came back from that screening and was. Yes. That movie is dribble. Go to YouTube and find Louis Vertel's interview with Hart and Will Ferrell at that junket kind of calling them out on their bullshit and, and Kevin Hart trying to be like, well, funny is funny, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm sure there's going to be a whole like, oh, God, it's 2018. Everything's going to come back. You know, nobody can make a joke anymore. No, that that is not what this is. This is somebody who in the very recent past, let's not forget that, let's not pretend that 2010 was like the 50s. 2010. That's eight years ago. Yes. Even was, I can do that now. Was, was saying homophobic crap. And if he's evolved since then, great. But the way you show that you've evolved is to say, I was a different person then. I don't feel that way now. Not to be all like, man, stop being negative. I'm a better person now. You know, it's like that's not how you handle this kind of thing. And especially as some comics have pointed out, like the worst kind of gay joke you can make is one that encourages people to like hit their kids for showing signs of queerness like that's the kind of take home souvenir from your show that they don't sell at the merch table mm -hmm. you know and so he just handled this colossally wrong do I think that Kevin Hart is more enlightened about queer people than he used to be yes do I think that he completely mishandled this situation so it's probably just as well that he's not going to host the Oscars also yes yeah he, he handled it poorly from the start and I think there's just sort of a an entitled kind of righteous indignation that is totally undeserved. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. Um, a, a, a very simple heartfelt apology would have gone a long way and he would have still had this gig, I suspect. Yeah, and this is just a few years after the whole debacle of them hiring Brett Ratner to direct the Oscars and then he said rehearsal is for fags <laughs> and then he got the bump it's like who do they think watches the Academy Awards like I'm sorry the, the, the audience is dwindling every year they're always coming up with these desperate things like 10 best picture nominees and most popular and whatever other gimmicky garbage they can come up with and let's take the governor's awards out of the, 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 the show and let's take the tech awards out of the show you know who is still left clinging to this sinking raft? It's gay people. <laughs> We're the ones who have the watching parties. We're the ones who treat this like our Super Bowl. So why would you go out of your way to hire somebody who's going to like alienate so much of the audience by being this much of a jerk about it? I can see, though, also why... 
choosing Kevin Hart makes a lot of sense for the kinds of changes that the Academy is trying to make in terms of providing some diversity, in sure. terms of trying to find somebody who is mainstream, but also seems like edgy for the kids. Well, like well, he seemed to they, straddle both those well, roles. And it's the idea of like, well, we can take the gay audience for granted. They'll show up no matter what. So yeah. let's try and find somebody who's going to appeal to the Monday Night Football right. it crowd. Was a, it was a bold move that they, that they decided to go with someone short. <laughs> there are no short people in Hollywood. So um, I guess we'll, we'll keep following this. When, when and if they do pick a new Academy Awards host, we will talk about that. And, and I see also that, yeah, there's like a backlash to that thing. Oh, you can't make any jokes anymore. Humor is not allowed anymore. Like, you can't tweet anymore because any tweets will have come back to bite you in the ass. Like, no, it's not about that. No. And also, <laughs> like, tweets and, and jokes that comedians sell are in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're going to talk about them. Of course, they count when we're discussing who somebody is and what they're about. And it's like, no, it's not that you can't make jokes anymore. It's that you can't make these, like, tired, punching downward jokes about an entire class of people and yeah. expect that that class of people isn't going to say, uh, please stop that. You know, that's the <laughs> thing. Every time you hear the when comics push back on, like, what they perceive as censorship and, uh-huh. and things that are that are sacred cows, like, okay, look. If you're writing a smart enough joke about something, go ahead. But the stuff that relies on bigotry, like, you know, I'd have you. Screw you. Like, yeah. uh, sorry. I, you know, if that's the best you got, that's your whole shtick, then maybe you need to find something else and actually learn how to write jokes. Right. There's plenty of people who could work clean, right? There's plenty of people who can work within restrictions and still be hilarious, yeah. right? And, and if you think that, like, it's your duty to uh, that you absolutely have to say offensive things, you know, and and really like punch down. Yeah, you kind of suck. Then you're yeah, you're hacking. Right. Well, I really liked Chris Rock as Oscar host. That was really funny, and it, it was contemporary and not hacky. Uh, but I guess he pissed off too many people. Well, Sean Penn got mad because he made fun of Jude Law. Right, so you, and you can't have Ricky Gervais anymore, of course, because he's going to offend everybody, and right. so he's not a good choice. Can we just have Tina Fey and Amy Poehler host everything all the time sure. ever? Or, you know, as people pointed out, Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph would be awesome. Uh, I would posit if we want to go, if we're trying to, if we're shooting for diversity, you get uh, you get Wanda Sykes. Right. That, she's, that, she's, she's, she's a woman, she's a lesbian. Who is it that keep saying the rock would be good the i'm sure i bet you he said no i bet you right, he's no, too, no, but i, I mean the too art busy. critic for, um, oh i don't know uh, there's a critic that i know yeah. no of anyway course. nobody he, wants this gig at this point yeah. no but it's a it's, it's career job. suicide <laughs> you know yeah get, i like the paddington suggestion i like the muppets <laughs> suggestion there's a lot of good ones floating around the deadpool suggestion you that know what at, at our la film critics awards we don't have a host it's what true. happens is each of us walks up on stage when it's time to give out our award, and I say, "Hi, I'm Christy Lemire. I'm here to give out the award for best screenplay or whatever it is," and and it moves really well. And you just know that your category is next, and then you come up on stage. Yeah, I mean, that's, the Oscars has presenters. It's like the, the the host is sort of there to like give a monologue and direct traffic, but be a through line. Oy. Anyway, so we'll keep track of that. I'm um, speaking of Werner uh, Herzog. Oh my god, there we go. <laughs> the Oscars are like a plastic bag vaulting. <laughs> through the breeze you may catch it one day or not wait he did the Katy Perry video <laughs> yeah so um, awards are meaningless so speaking of awards Unless that are meaningless <laughs> so speaking of um, more of Alonzo's favorite conversation topic Woo-hoo. we have Golden Globe nominations that came out yesterday morning it was so nice speaking of snoring I was really happy to be asleep when they happened because for many years I would have to go to the Beverly Hilton at 5.38 a.m. Oh, actually you had man. to be there at 4.30 right. or so you, and you did that for the Oscars with yeah. me several times too when you yeah. were at Rotten Tomatoes still. It's actually kind of fun. They have breakfast for you. They better. Yes, they have lots of coffee. Um, so the Golden Globe nominations came out yesterday. Vice has the most with six, including Best Picture, Best Director, Christian Bale, Amy Adams. Um, you also have A Star is Born, The Favorite, and Green Book. Each got five. Oh, fuck Green Book. <laughs> <laughs> That can't it, be said often enough. That movie is some jive. Right, but that's exactly the kind of movie that the Golden oh, Globes totally, is yes. here to. And I'm sure the Academy yeah. is, the old members of the Academy are ready to kiss its ass. I think the young members of the Academy are like, what is this nonsense? Yes, so Best Picture Drama, I'll just really quickly run through these. Best, best Picture Drama, the nominees are Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody. Speaking of movies that are like <laughs> tailor-made for the Golden Globes, oh, yeah, Bohemian yeah, Rhapsody, yeah. If Beale Street Could Talk, and A Star is Born. 
not nominated as a musical, which is interesting. Or a comedy. Yeah, for that matter. It's hilarious at the end. Mm. So, um, and then best motion picture, musical, or comedy. But then the things they think are comedies are also not comedies. Well, of course. For, so, Crazy Rich Asians, I okay. guess, is a comedy. Sure. The yeah, favorite. That's a rom com. The Come favorite on. is, is totally bitingly Dark darkly comedy, funny, yeah. but I don't know if it's comedy. Oh, that Green Book. Hilarious. Green Book is a thing that makes you laugh. I laughed at it. Yes. Uh, Mary Poppins Returns is perfect in the wheelhouse. And then Vice. I think Vice is meant to make you laugh uncomfortably. Hmm. It's not really supposed to be... It's supposed to be chilling and terrifying as far as this person's power, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks when Vice comes out. Um, Anyway, so among our actress nominees, Glenn Close, Lady Gaga, Nicole Kidman for Destroyer. Please, the first time you saw the picture of her wearing no makeup, you were like, well, there's a Golden Globe nominee right there. Right. She's so brave. Um, she's actually, she is good in it. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, so, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me and Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike wearing an eye patch, also mm. a guaranteed I nomination so. of some sort. Best Actor Drama, Bradley I see a Cooper. For her in pirate movies. Yes, Don't. Bradley Cooper, Willem Dafoe, Lucas Hedges for Boy Erased, not Lucas Hedges for Ben is Back. Rachel Weiss. Rachel Weiss and. Also wearing an eye patch this year. It's like a piece of lace. I know. I'm just saying. It's, it's not. It, yeah, meant to, meant to cover up her scar. Well, I think technically, uh, do we do we consider him supporting or leading Ben is back? He's Ben. He's the titular he, Ben. He is Ben, but still. <laughs> I think he's a lead. Okay. He's not supporting. Is he? I mean, I think that is like the it's Julia, Julia Roberts, Roberts show, movie. but you know, anyway, who knows? doesn't matter. He didn't get nominated. Rami oh. Malek and John David Washington, and then um, your best actress in a comedy are Emily Blunt from Mary Poppins, Olivia Coleman. They think she's a lead. I guess she's they're, they're technically a lead. A lead. Been, Fox is yes. all along. They're pushing her as a lead. I think she's supporting. Elsie Fisher, Charlize Theron, and Constance Wu, a nice Ooh. nominee for Crazy Rich Asians. <sighs> and then Best Actor in a Motion Picture Comedy Musical, Christian Bale and Vice, Lin-Manuel Miranda in Mary Poppins Returns, Viggo Mortensen in Green Book, <laughs> Robert Redford in that hilarious comedy, The Old Man and the Gun, and John C. Riley in Stan and Ollie. Yay. So he gets something, but not Steve Coogan. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, as I, I said on Twitter yesterday, I said, you can't, if you think that the Golden Globes are a joke, you can't also be elated slash angered at their inclusions slash no. overlookings. I so would, it's like, I, I part of me is like, I mean, I'm glad for John C. Riley because I am glad for John C. Riley. I think he's really good in that movie, but I don't have an ounce of respect for the Golden Globes or what they do. No, I will say, though, this year there was a conspicuous lack of, like, batshit crazy nominations. There's always, you know, like a Pia Zadora. Of the tourists. There's no, there's no Pia Zadora this year. They're all pretty re- respectable, commendable, you know, awards contenders. You know, I, think, I think the HFPA over the years has learned that everyone thinks they're a joke, and so they're trying not to be bought so obviously. They're desperately striving for <laughs> Right, the Pia Zadora, you, that's... Prior to the internet years, right? It's harder yeah, to that get was like way the back. 80s. But 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 even recently, like the tourist, you know, like whenever right. Madonna acts, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like they they have some questionable choices. Anyway, so uh, we will we will maybe acknowledge Hollywood's second biggest night at some point when it happens in a month, yeah. or not. <laughs> so the movies we're talking about today. Uh, Actually, none of them are nominated for Golden Globes, but some of them, some of them might potentially get an Oscar then nomination. Let's just go home now. They here. can't possibly matter. <laughs> let's talk about Mary Queen of Scots. All the movies opening this week are in limited release, I believe. There's nothing like a huge movie until next week. Right. So uh, we're getting the stuff for you guys now. Although starting, one of them is on Netflix, though. I, I couple of them? No. Just, just one. Okay. Anyway, we'll get to that one eventually. But let's start with Mary Queen of Scots. Who wants to describe it? Uh, I, I'll, I'll take a stab. Sure. Uh, okay. So it's Mary Queen of Scots. You you know this story. It's uh, uh, the the rival queens, Mary in Scotland, Elizabeth I in England, Elizabeth standing for the Church of England while Mary remaining steadfastly Catholic and their struggle. Um but this film I found really interesting because it's written by Bo Willimon, who uh, was one of the main guys behind the American House of Cards. So he really knows his political intrigue. And I think that the movie is very smart about, you know, if we aren't experts on Elizabethan, uh, uh, you know, in, you know uh, sort of behind the scenes machinations, he really kind of makes clear, like, what are the stakes and who wants what and how are they going to try and get it? Um, 
And, uh, you know, uh, it's also for what we're not used to seeing in period films, although it's wrong that we don't because the world has always been this way. This movie has, like, major characters of color and major characters who are queer. And, um, you know, we're so used to these, like, super white things and just assume, oh, well, England has always been that way until, like, the 50s or something, you know. No, there have always been people from other parts of the world in other parts of the world (laughs) once the boats started going around, you know. So I thought that was kind of a cool addition to it as well. But it really comes down to the two leads, Saoirse Ronan as Mary and Margot Robbie as Elizabeth. And, um, and, you know, as powerful as these women are and as capable, uh, they are all ultimately having to deal with men around them and what the men want and what the men suggest and when are you going to get married and when are you going to have children. And really, I mean, if you want to – the movie doesn't underline this, but, you know, I, I, I sort of was thinking that that if given how much both of them are driven by their – uh, allegiance to a particular church that you know the the patriarchy that is getting in their way includes Jesus. Yes. <laughs> but they both remain steadfast to their respective interpretations of Jesus. Exactly. This film but, is not an indictment of, of religion, I don't no, think, no, no, at no, all. No, 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 not at all. But I'm just saying religion is just another dude dragging them <sighs> down and getting in the way of them, like, running the show. A divisive yeah. force. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but, yeah, it's directed by Josie Rourke. She is a, a British theater director. I think this is her first film. It is. She is the artistic director of um, Donmar Warehouse in oh, London. Oh, okay, Yes, gotcha. very acclaimed. And Margot Robbie is clearly relishing getting to be the not pretty one in this movie. Like, there's a movie, there's a scene where she comes down with like the pox mm-hmm. and it's just covered in scabs and you're just thinking I, I could just tell she was like yes right, like, she got like, the plague from both houses exactly <laughs> like I Tanya was not far enough for her as far as yeah. like subverting what her traditional like, gorgeous looks do you like. want me to shave my head I will shave my head <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's exciting and, and like speaking of awards I mean this should win for like hair and makeup because oh, for sure because it, yeah. it's not just showy it's absolutely germane drink to who these women are and what their evolution is both independently of each other and as you know kind of competing rival forces like they they evolve individually but also together with each other in mind as far as like what is a representation of formidable female strength. And yeah. The way they look is a reflection of that. Like on the one hand, they're rivals, but on the other hand, like each is the each other are the only ones who really understand them mm-hmm. and know what they're going through. So mm-hmm. it's like you have to wonder what they might have accomplished had they been, you know, allies. Yes, and, and uh, the men in this are kind of useless. Not not unlike the favorite, <laughs> the men in this are pawns, and and they're kind of they're they're playthings, and they are messengers. Yeah. And uh, are they pawns? I wouldn't say that they're pawns. No. Well, I mean, I, Guy Pierce certainly gets to like. I think he's manipulated. But the younger the younger men are like one guy is literally sent back and forth between them. You know. No, no I get that. Like the, at least the ones that that are set up as possible husbands or pawns. But well, I think and also there's... I think like Adrian Lester, who's kind of like the ambassador who's running back and forth between them. Like they're both working him and like, no, no, understood. Know. But like Guy Pierce is definitely, you know, he's, he's the consigliere. He, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, there's definitely that there's, you know, we really see, you know, this really kind of fun scenery chewing performance by David Tennant as the, priest is mm. right the the yeah, the fox news of ancient <laughs> right, right. In, a, in that beard that's so big he's almost unrecognizable but he was uh played the doctor at doctor who for years right. and mm. like you really almost can't see him in there but he's really going for it and i wouldn't say that he's necessarily a pawn so much as he's you know playing the glenn beck kind of yeah i mean well, he, he's definitely the sort of house organ slash you know propagandist for the people that he the, the, the side he's rooting for right know? but then like but like jack loudon as yeah, and, and and joe alwyn are both you know at various points in time respective love interests right. but they're there for their sheer purpose of what they need right. to do within the monarchy. They're the bimbos of this movie. They are. So, yeah, I, I really appreciated both the, the deep sense of place. And it's lush, but it's not dainty. You know, it's it's muddy and mucky. And there's Every a, room a, looks cold. Yeah, there's a, there's a tactile quality to 
the clothes and the mud and just everything about it. Like, it, it's not perfect, and I like that about it. Um, but there's also an interesting kind of colloquial nature to the way the women talk. It's not full-on anachronism like the Sofia Coppola Marie Antoinette, for right. example. It's, it's not that, but there's something very bracing and very alive and very today about the way these two very strong women conduct themselves and, and talk to each other and talk to their people, and I like that about it. There was maybe one sort of reversal toward the end, you know, because there's a lot of like, this is very, one of those sort of chess movies where people are making moves and then counter moves, and you know, uh, there was one where I was like, wait, what? Like, I, I literally just missed what happened. Like, it went by so fast where it was like, uh-oh, all this seems lost. Oh, no, 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 it's not. Like, what, what just happened? Like, stop movie. Because the rest of the movie is so good about guiding you through mm-hmm. what the machinations are and what they mean and what the what the consequences are. There was just, there was just one instance where I was literally like... I, I'm sorry, did we miss... Is there a scene missing? Like, what just happened? The palace intrigue is dense. Yes. yes. But for the most part, I was able to follow it. And I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see how these two women are sort of like, you know, are, 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 are neither one is to be dismissed. Like, they're both, they're both at odds with very equal sort of senses of, like, strategy. It's kind of like a Rocky movie. In a lot of ways. It is. In yeah. that you're, you're waiting for that. the big showdown. And each of them is aware of the other. And each is talking trash about the other. And each is kind of, you know, puffing up her peacock feathers to show that she's boss. And then finally, you know, it's you can't wait until that climactic moment where... They meet in the ring. They do finally meet in what is kind of like a ring. But it's... And I love the way that scene is staged yeah. because it adds layer upon layer of tension to the final reveal of them, you know, finally confronting one another face to face. But it just occurred to me as we were talking that this feels like a Rocky movie in that you're waiting for that moment. It's all kind of like two hours of build up waiting for that moment. And they're each training individually in their own ways to strengthen themselves for that moment. Also, Elizabeth has a robot with a tape deck in it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Matt, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I mostly like this movie. There's some choices that I think, I would have done a little bit uh, that I wasn't wild about. Like, uh, you know, you don't get a sense. And I don't think even in the end card, I could be wrong, but you know, the, we, I mean, look, if you know your history, you know how this story goes, right? Right. But Mary was locked up for 20, 25 years before she was finally executed. Right. Like Mm -hmm. she was kind of out of power and, and, and the movie makes it kind of would have you almost, at least intimates that, like, oh, this is a year later. She looks the same. Right. Sir she looks, looks the same. And yes, yeah. there's there. They kind of explain that away because you know Elizabeth writes the letter. You know, I still imagine you as as the young, beautiful figure, but it's still a little like, mm. you know, and to kind of put it in perspective, like, you know, you don't realize that James is the King James of the Bible. Right. Well, they make it clear that, like, you know, for, for all of Elizabeth's, like, ma- maintenance of power, she ultimately did not produce an heir, and Mary right. did. So, you know, do right. the math. No, no, I, but there's, you know, there's, I think it's a really effective movie. I was, what I really liked was how almost mercenary both of the queens are about their personal lives. Like, you know, Mary has to almost forced her husband to have sex with her. Uh, so that, right. Not even really almost. Almost, right. And, you know, then like, all right, get out, right? Yeah. Like, I, I got to make sure this takes. Uh, right. Which was like, damn, all right. Uh, well, he kind of has it coming by that Yeah, point. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I like this a lot. I thought the performances were terrific. Uh, Saoirse Ronan continues to impress me. Oh, God. Um, yeah. And I thought Margot Robbie was great. She was. Um, I want to mention really fast, Alexandra Byrne is the costume designer Mm. she also won an oscar for elizabeth the golden age and also was nominated for finding neverland and elizabeth and hamlet so this is uh this is her Her bread and butter here here's what i was happy about i was happy about that we faded to black when we did and did not get the disaster that was the execution Oh, oh did they, did they, did they take oh, several like, chops? Oh, oh, my God. So two or three blows, had to saw saw off the head. I Like, it's a whole, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's a, yeah. It's, it's disastrous. Well, there you go. There's so, that really hilarious Monty Python bit that's... 
Oh, oh yeah, they did this radio bit, you, you know, Mary Queen of Scots, and it's, you are Mary Queen of Scots, I am, and you hear all this violence, <laughs> I think she's dead. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, what's, the, what's the one with, uh, when Candace Berger was on Saturday Night Live, playing, I think it was one of Henry VIII's wives, and they're talking about, what will happen to my head? Will it be shot out of a cannon? Will my head be shot at my body? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'm saying eight. It is totally solid. See it on a, on a big screen. It's very pretty. Uh, yeah, I say eight as well. I went eight point two. I uh, I really like these performances, and and frankly, I went into this thinking, oh Christ, I mean, uh, like what is left to say about Mary Queen of Scots? There's been so many movies of this, or, or you know, or, or movies about this period of history, and this felt it's like the first Elizabeth. I felt like, oh, okay, this is a fresh take. This is really taking me into it and making me sort of understand it on a level that I normally wouldn't because I'm not a historian. Right, yeah. It's, it's very alive, and both those actresses do a lot to make it feel that way. I agree. I agree. So our number is an 8.1. It's at 74%. On the tomato meter, let us do Ben is Back, which I'm happy to describe if you guys don't mind, because sure, I just wrote a review of it for RogerEbert.com. So it's back. all, and I, ironically or not, Ben is not here today to talk about Ben is Back with us. <laughs> yes, it would be, uh, it would be news. If Ben were here, where's Ben? Atlanta. Probably. Atlanta. Anyway, it wasn't Tucson. One Who of these cares? one of these days, we'll have our own version of Ben is back. But um, for now, you have this movie from writer director Peter Hedges, who I did not even realize is dad of Lucas. I, this is where I learned that. This too. is where I learned that. I don't know why I just didn't put two and two together. I mean, Lucas Hedges has such a, a prolific career just in the last few years alone. Um, but, yeah. I, I, I went to see Shoplifters this week, and my friend Gary said, "Okay." How many of these trailers are going to have Lucas Hedges? <laughs> one of them did, but what, the, the was it for Boy Race? No, it was it was it was Ben is back. But like the last time we went to the, when we went to see mid nineties, yeah. we got the, the the Ben is back and the Boy Race trailers, and then he was in mid nineties. Right. Like, oh my God, Lucas Hedges! Right. It's a Hedgehog Day, and he was in <laughs> right. He was last year. He was in Lady Bird, and he was in Three Billboards, and before that, he, he was, was Oscar nominated for, for Manchester, Manchester by, by the, the sea. sea. So he's a busy young actor. Somebody tweeted, "I wonder how Lady Bird feels that both of her." ex-boyfriends are junkies now. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> they both went through rehab. That's true. So, um, so Ben is back. Well, she ended up queen. She's fine. Well, there you go. That's ben right. is back. She is the titular queen, right. if you will. Um, so this is about a young man named Ben who um, leaves rehab for 24 hours, supposedly at the encouragement of his sponsor, to go back and visit his family on Christmas Eve. Right. And his mom is played by Julia Roberts. Um, the mom has remarried to Courtney B. Vance. Um, he's got a younger sister, played by Catherine Newton, who is also his sister in Three Billboards. That's where I've seen yes, her. Yes, she's, she's also in Blockers. She's in Blockers. She's also Leslie Mann's daughter in Blockers. Oh, okay. So she's very good in this. So um, Julia Roberts and Courtney B. Vance have two young kids of their own. It's Christmas Eve morning. They have been to church already to do last-minute rehearsals for the big... And she's in Lady Bird. Right. Sheesh. It all comes full circle. Yeah, she's around. an actress who's all over the place. She's very sorry, good. Sorry, go it's okay. So um, everyone is bustling with Christmas happiness. You know, they've they've got a big performance that night at church for the big Christmas Eve mass, and um, they're all performing in it. And they pull back up to their house, their stately house in upstate New York, in this idyllic snow covered small town. And there's Ben in his hoodie, and he's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be at rehab. And the look on Julia Roberts' face is such a great example of how she does so much simultaneously so well. We, we could take for granted, you know, that Julia Roberts right. can actually act. Oh. And she has this a combination of feelings which we would imagine we would all also feel in that moment. But she has the capacity to express them on her face all at once. And so she's... She's thrilled and she's terrified and she's overcome with emotion, but she's also frightened and she's trying too hard to make it all seem normal. And she's laughing too hard at his jokes and, and just trying to bustle around the kitchen like everything is fine. But she also takes the time to hide the pills in her medicine cabinet and, and the hide valuables. the jewelry. <laughs> she goes to her jewelry box and hides all that stuff. So she's been burned enough by this kid over the years with his addiction to know that she she wants to be open hearted, but she's also got to fortify herself and protect her family. So it's what happens over those twenty four hours when Ben is back in their lives, and 
it's a it's a more interesting film in the first half than it is in the second. In the in the mm. first half, when it's a family drama, when it's a character drama, when it's an exploration of the day in and day out of living with somebody with drug addiction, substance abuse problems, you know, it's it's that contradiction of. You know they're a liar. They admit to you that they're a liar, but you keep trying to believe them and trust in them because you want them to get better. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky line to walk. When it's just her and him walking around the mall, for example, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do some last-minute Christmas shopping or just hanging out around the house or just the basic day in and day out of family life, that to me was more compelling than what happens in the second half of the film when it becomes more of this... The clicking, clicking talk, ticking <laughs> clock, kind of crime thriller, sort of mystery where they are forced to run around town and revisit all of his misdeeds in order to solve a problem. Yeah, so, I, 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 it's sort of like if this movie were French, we could just do the first half and yes. they'd be fine with it. But this is an American movie, so we have to have like drug dealers and you know chases and whatnot. Yeah, some of that stuff I think takes the movie in a direction it doesn't need to go even though there's still pockets of you see what it does to the family and I think that's where it stays true because I think what's really fascinating about this movie because this is something I think we don't get a lot is that this movie does this great job of showing you know and I kind of understand why Hedges could be seen as a supporting role in this the Ben character because it really is about the family and it really is you know he shows up and apart from the two little kids, uh, you know, Courtney B. Vance, Neil, the husband, mm. and Ben's sister, immediately are like, oh, no, 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 yeah. no, no, do not let him in. Like, they, they know the, enough. They yeah. know, they, they are, they're the ones who've been burned enough, right? right. And, you know, yes, this is, you know, uh, it's, it's a The it's sister still with, loves him, but she's very. But it's different with a mother, right? And, yeah. and with a, a, you know, a boy's mother can't draw that line the same way that a sister or a stepfather can and or arguably even a dad right but this one i you know and so the the hoops and the and the kind of the mental gymnastics that ben's mom does to still convince herself to be there with him and you see the toll it takes on her you know, in that she ends up lying to her husband and ends up lying to her daughter. Her daughter, and, 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 and even when Ben is first there, like she's trying to lay down the law and give him these very specific rules that then even she can't like follow. Right, <laughs> right. And the thing is, it's it's because you know, arguably, you know, you would you would want to say that the best thing for Ben is to immediately go back to rehab, and she's not willing to take that step. Right, right. And it, and so it becomes very harrowing. Um, and so you do, you know, one of the, as much as it turns into this crime story that it doesn't really need to, I think the opportunity that she gets walked through some of the stuff that he's done and her reaction to that, yeah, that the reality when she didn't have to look at, like, because she could compartmentalize, right? Yeah. Like, she, like, the guy that's like, it turns out to be his old teacher, yeah, right? Or, or some of the other people that she starts to realize that he were in his life, she's clearly not prepared for. And that's fascinating to watch. The the movie is very smart about its exposition in terms of cluing. We get, we get clued into a lot of this stuff when the Julia Roberts character does, as far as what, what he was like before, what happened before. There's also a great scene in the mall that I don't want to give away where Julia Roberts has, takes what seems to be a, 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 a standard moment and turns it into something else. It's like, whoa. Um, yeah, but I agree with you. I, I, I like this more as just the family dealing with his stuff than them running around town dealing with the, the larger issues of stuff. It is a better movie than Hedges' uh, Pieces of April, which is about a, yeah. which is a Thanksgiving oh. movie yeah. about like the sort of the one the one troubled child in an otherwise sort of stodgy family. But yeah, she's also, not nearly the level of trouble that Ben is. No, it's also a better movie than Beautiful Boy, which it will have yes. inevitable comparisons to because you have also you know an affluent white family dealing with a, a young man about the same age, about nineteen twenty, who would seem to have it all in front of him. Yeah. But you know, it, it is a reminder that drug addiction affects everybody, yeah. of course, and, and, and this, you have unlimited means to you know 
throw money at it and make it go away, but that doesn't necessarily make it go away. This movie calls out its own bouginess, you know, mm-hmm. mainly well, through the presence of the Neil character, but in other ways as well. So, yeah, it has that over beautiful But it's fascinating, before. you know, there's that moment you reference in the mall, uh-huh. but yet she then does the exact opposite of that later, right, when talking about the girl. Oh, right? true, yeah. Like, and, it, and again, it's that mental gymnastics like, oh, well... Yeah, okay. Right. You're at right. fault. You're okay. Yeah. yeah. That's well, yeah. No matter what is happening in this film, that connection between Julia Roberts and Lucas Hedges is the thing that keeps it compelling. And yeah, she is sort of discovering him all over again for the first time. This person that she thought she knew, that she thought she'd come to terms with, she's having to real, realize that she's had to you know, discover him all over again in ways that are chilling. And that was, as, as a mom myself, that was you know, kind of a good reminder that you never really truly know your children. You think you do, but you don't. Um, yeah, that, so their relationship worked for me. And I, I like it's good. It's good. You know? and, and Peter Hedges is smart to let his actors act. The direction is very unfussy, very unshowy. He will you know, sit back and let them speak his words and do their, do their magic. He knows what his son can do. There's a great scene where he um, then goes to an, an NA meeting, a Narcotics yeah. Anonymous meeting, and he, he shares. And so he gets this big, long monologue where he gets to really run the gamut of emotions from trying to charm the room with swagger and jokes at the beginning and profanity at the beginning, and then you know steadily recognizing his own frailty and and he makes himself very vulnerable by the end and that's just a, a very impressive you know segment of the film and yeah he, the acting is always strong and he puts the camera up close so he really i think people are allowed to uh to do the subtle things like you were saying like Julia Roberts is doing so much with just what the expression on her face and and Lucas Hedges is as well and a lot of the other performance or the, a lot of the other performers so it, it is a it, it does have this feeling of intimacy i mean does he comes from the theater right Peter Hedges yeah I believe so yeah anyway so so he's very much about like these sort of small moments oh god i'm looking at he in between pieces of april and this he directed dan in real life which i hated yeah steve carell Speaking on of steve pancakes carell. and the odd life of timothy green which i've never seen but i hear is ridiculous yeah this is better than those anyway yes. and courtney b vance does quite a bit with a small part and oh, Catherine sure. newton is very good as the voice of reason so everyone gets their moments to shine the, act, the acting is what keeps this, this thing together when the narrative right. gr- grinds into gear and gets out of control so yeah. anyway i'm saying 7.5 uh i said seven I think I said what did you I said seven point five. Yeah. Do you want to stay that? Stay sure. There? Okay. So seven point three is our number. It's at eighty three percent on the tomato meter. Let's do Vox Lux. Who wants to describe Vox Lux? Yeah. I guess Alonzo has to. You oh, go. Man. Okay. <laughs> All right. I can. I can. Want me to? Like it better than okay, you. Okay. So, so a, a teenage girl named Celeste uh, in nineteen ninety nine two thousand is caught in a school shooting. In Staten Island, and um, she is shot, but she survives. And after going through a lengthy rehabilitation process, uh, she she writes a song about the the incident and performs it at a memorial service while like wearing a back brace and, and standing at a walker. And it is this moment that sort of galvanizes the nation and immediately turns her into a, a star. And she and her sister uh, get hooked up with a manager played by uh, Jude Law. They put together an album. By the end of putting the record together, the sisters are no longer are, are estranged, and Celeste, you know, kind of goes off on her own. Then we jump to the present day. Um, Celeste is a hot mess, played by Natalie Portman. Um, her Teenage daughter, who's played by the same actress who played young Celeste. Raffi Cassidy. Raffi Cassidy from uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, barely sees her. She is being raised by Celeste's sister, who's played by Stacey Martin. And um, she is on the. she's about to do a big show in her hometown of Staten Island. Uh, but there's been a terrorist incident involving people wearing masks from one of her old videos. She is barely hanging on. She's... Uh, got major substance abuse problems and uh, the movie is just sort of trying to explore like is she going to get through this show uh, can she hold it together it's sort of a fascinating darker version of A Star is Born yes I was thinking that it's too. darkly twisted it's um, so 
Brady Corbet wrote and directed it. Yes. And his background as an actor is in some very challenging stuff like Mysterious Skin exactly. and Funny Games. Yes. And I haven't read any interviews with him, and I suspect that he has taken a great deal from the tricky, dark tone of those films. Right. As far as being like social satires, this definitely is that. This is looking at fame, the crucible of fame, which is a topic we have seen so many times, but he finds his own kind of off-kilter way into that idea. And Natalie Portman is so great in this. It's like all the all the dark, weird, challenging stuff she did in Black Swan. This is like a whole nother level of that. And it's exciting to watch. I found Natalie Portman sort of performatively vulgar. It was kind of getting on my nerves. That's the point. No, but it was it was so like it, I, I never settled back into this performance of believing her as this person. I kept watching. Look at me. I'm 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 pretty Ivy League Natalie Portman, but I'm doing a Staten Island accent, and I'm talking about. Could you get me some wine in a plastic cup? She is from New York. She can do the accent. She can do the accent, <laughs> but she's doing the accent, and I never stopped watching her do the accent, and so that kind of the whole second half of this movie, once she hits the screen, I just. It took me out of whatever it was trying to weave with the first stuff. Like, you know, also, this movie is so narrated. It drove me up the wall. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. If you're going to have a narrator, <laughs> granted, he's a hell of a choice and he does, he's fine with it. But there's so much narration of things that the, the movie is telling you and not showing you that drove me bonkers. I would argue that that is the point that it is telling you what's really happening. In sort of a sardonic way compared to what an ordinary film would show you of this kind of character. Mm, it's but, meant to be a, a contradiction. But, but, but it didn't feel like the thing where like, oh, you're seeing one thing but hearing another. It, the like movie, in First Reformed, right? Yeah. Like Ethan Hawke is narrating his exactly. own yeah, journal entry. you have an unreliable yeah. narrator or if you have a reliable narrator and an unreliable you know, protagonist or whatever. But I didn't get that here. This just felt like... Here, we had to get from this scene to that scene, or we have to tell you what's really going on behind the scenes, so we're just going to tell you, tell you, tell you, tell you, tell you. Um, I, yeah. enjoy, I enjoy the trashiness of Natalie Portman, and I enjoy the fact that, you know, you can take the girl out of Staten Island, but you can't take the Staten Island out of the girl. And she became you know, this international pop superstar. Sia, in real life, wrote the songs that she performs, right. you know? The, the whole, like, last what, 10, 15 minutes of the film are a giant concert and it's sort of like a, a Lady Gaga kind of spectacle yeah. of like sparkly adds, background that dancers. That adds nothing to the character of the story. But I feel like that is meant to be a reflection of the exact kind of pop star that people worship now. And so she is that, but she is not necessarily a better person because of it. She's a mess. She, she, she never evolves beyond the gum-chewing, profane teenager that she was when the school shooting happened she's still like trashy and obnoxious and doesn't become you know a citizen of the world in any way just by no, having been and, an international and, and, I, and i didn't want her to be but i just and that's, that's kind of cool about it but in though. the in the way that natalie portman presents it it just felt to me like i was watching it was like an snl sketch it's like okay. you're watching somebody do this sort of cultural stereotype mm-hmm. and it, she and celeste stopped being a person for me it just was like natalie portman doing a voice and uh and you know yeah and i I think she's a very talented (laughs) actress but i think there are times where she you can you watch the gears moving Mm -hmm. you know she's acting with a capital a like you know i was watching her be jackie kennedy and Uh now i'm watching her be this like you know tough talking pop singer Um, did you not feel her progressive breakdown though as as the film goes on like he uses a lot of long like walking and talking tracking shots yeah and i I feel like he wants to like bring us into that world and you, feel her degeneration. You, you do get the sense of disintegration, but I felt like I'd seen that story about a pop singer mm-hmm. so many times at this point. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I don't know. I, I went into this with really high expectations. I, I liked Brady Corbet's debut film a lot, uh, Childhood of a Leader. I don't think I saw that. I think you did. Did I? I think you did. Uh, did I? Oh, okay. Yes, you did. Maybe, maybe I did. Alonzo uh, tells me <laughs> that shows you how memorable. Uh, it was. Which was, I think, you know, really a, a we cool, see a, lot of a cool and ambitious movie. Um, but uh, yeah, and and this one, you know, I've been hearing good things about it. Our, our friend Dan Waters says it's his favorite film of the year. So I was like, okay, well, good that I really want to see this. He has good taste, our friend Dan Waters. He does. The man but, wrote uh, Heather's. But we do not always agree, <laughs> and this is one of those times that we don't agree. He so. does. He does like some nutty movies, though. He also loved Mandy. 
Well, there's another Which time we you don't, don't agree. <laughs> but I'm very much the minority of Mandy. Everybody likes that. I like Mandy. Mandy. All right. So um, I am saying 8.7. I dug it. It's weird. It's exciting. I gave it a 6.8. I think there's a lot of the technical stuff is really good. I like the supporting performances. Um, but, yeah, overall, it just kind of – it was working me for a while, and then the whole – Natalie Portman took me out of it. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me, Long Island? Or <laughs> Staten Island? Yes, yeah, so 7.8 is my number. Our, our number, rather. It's a 71% on the tomato meter. So I think a lot of folks don't know how to feel about this film. Could be. It is strange. Um, okay, so let's go on to something also a very New York story. The Roger Ailes documentary is called Divide and Conquer, the Roger Ailes story. Matt, do you want to describe it? Uh, yeah, so uh, Roger Ailes is... The, was or is the was. guy behind Fox News. Uh, he had was a producer for Mike Douglas Show, uh, went on to be the media consultant, a job he created for Nixon. Uh, he, you know, people will say that he helped get Nixon elected. Uh, and he arguably, you know, his vision of Fox News changed the country and changed our world. Um, Many people would say, me included, not for the better. Uh, This is a documentary that um, does not put Ailes in a particularly favorable light. And I think I say that uh, probably um, lightly. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's very dramatic, villainous music behind lots of it. Um, It it makes him out to be pretty much an awful person. Uh, And going into this, I was thinking, man, I'm glad this guy's dead. Uh, and when you finally get to the part where he's dead, it's like, yeah, good. Um, wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, you should only speak good of the dead. Whatever. Uh, he's dead. Yeah, he's dead. Good. good. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, this movie was, it's fascinating. I think it does a pretty good job. There's a lot of like, oh my God, this guy. Uh, it's, it's almost like anything you think you know is probably worse. Um, yeah, I, I like this movie a lot, even though it's got a loathsome subject. Um, what did you learn? What did you not know about Roger Ailes that you learned from this? Uh, I guess I had not, like, I had totally forgotten all the stuff about the little town. I um, didn't know any of that. Yeah, I had forgotten about explain, that. Explain, explain, that. explain that. Right, yeah. so he moves to this little town. Um, Cold Spring, Cold New York. Spring, and then buys the newspaper, partly because uh, Murdoch had bought the Wall Street Journal. Um and but but the paper in Putnam County is like right. a little small town weekly with like one desk right yeah. and you know he and it's fascinating like he wants to have his influence and turn this blue town red and it pushes back against him and then you know of course obviously in his mind it's the town's fault um, you know and kind of everything you'd think about somebody in that position who created kind of the mindset at Fox News that it's all about loyalty and he's paranoid and you know don't speak ill outside the family and keep it internal and all of that stuff all of that abuse that allowed him for so long to get away with the uh, harassment and abuse that he put on people and the bigotry that he had um, you know because people were financially invested in keeping that train going and you know you get a sense of like you know he he had hemophilia so he couldn't join the military so he would later say this was his way of being of service and giving back and it's like you know he clearly was insecure because as they get deeper into it you're like oh man this guy you almost feel sorry for him but then you realize no no no, he's awful uh, he, he is awful, but he he was visionary and you have to give him right. credit for that oh, absolutely I mean, in, in a lot of ways as far as under, understanding the way that television could be a tool and you could argue a weapon in a way that not everybody did, you right. know, back then. like a mad scientist, like, oh my God, this guy, oh no. And you see the seeds for Fox News Channel in a lot of other television that he helped create, like America's Talking. Right. A lot of those folks like Bill O'Reilly, like Sean Hannity were a part of that in the beginning. John Gibson, I want to say, was a part of that in the beginning. Like Brit- Brit Hume, I think, was – or no, he was just on Fox News. Yeah, but um, even like in smaller versions – like I think with America's Talking, he knew that with the women to have it be a see-through desk and to have a light shining on their legs. And you see how that's a precursor to, you know, the – 
icy Hitchcockian blonde look of right. you know, so many Fox anchors and even just the cut-in anchors and how you right. have the short skirts and the legs and you can you can see how the, the seeds were planted there. I, right, which is funny because later at some point, sorry to interrupt, okay, you yeah. get pictures of him and they're playing, what is it, Waltz of the Marionettes, the, the music that would be behind Hitchcock on Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> Presents. Right, you're getting, yeah, you're getting a little bit of that music later in the film, which is pretty funny. I did not know about any of the stuff with a small town newspaper, but it's also enlightening, not just from a professional perspective, but from a personal one, that he really didn't have any friends. And so he would go and like hang out with these uh, the small town, was it the Alderman? Yeah. He would just go hang out with him and just go shoot the shit with him because he didn't have any, any friends right. because he had so systematically built this wall around him to trust nobody that... Because um, it was also transactional. Right. Right. And, and again, like you almost, you would all, you know, if it was somebody who was using their ability and their, their kind of acumen in a different way, you would feel sorry for him. But it's like, yeah, well, that guy didn't deserve it. Yeah. But then you see, you see people, I mean, again, loyalty is a repeated theme in this film, how important it was to him to have that in his people. Like Shepard Smith, who is somebody who I think we could all argue, even you, Alonzo, could maybe perhaps argue that Shepard Smith does think for himself comparatively within this machinery. He does seem like a voice of reason. I I don't watch Foxes that much, but I see clips from him occasionally where he is sort of rocking the boat and not sort of towing the line of what the network is trying right. to push. Actual facts, yeah. like the Uranium right. One deal, what it was and what it wasn't. Shepard called that out. So, um, But he, you know, he cried on air when they announced that Roger Ailes had died because Roger took really good care of him. And in a conservative world and in a kind of staid media world, like Roger didn't care about, you know, who Shepard was dating, you know, Roger supported him no matter what. Right. And so and so he was uh, perhaps more complicated. I don't know. I've got a Roger Ailes story for you. Oh. Please. I mean, not like not like Megan Kelly or Gretchen Carlson right. had. But um, so Chris and I lived in New York for a long time. We lived in New York for like six years. And Chris worked at Fox News Channel. And Chris worked for Shepard Smith's show and for John Gibson's show. He was a copy editor and a writer and a producer on both those shows. This is like in the mid-2000s. And Shepard, at that point, lived in this loft above a lighting store in the Bowery. And it had a giant wall of windows, and it looked like a bar. So people would, like, knock on the door all the time and try to come up to it. Because if they had all the, all the windows open and the lights on, there's a pool table there. People were drinking. People were partying. You would think it was, like, some cool little club you'd want to get into. <laughs> so I want to say it was around Christmas, the year that Saddam Hussein was captured, whatever year that was, 2003, 2004, 2003, um, we were all at a party at Shepard Smith's apartment. And it was fun and festive and packed, whatever. And Roger Ailes shows up. He's by himself. He's wearing uh, like a dusty blue members-only jacket. And the whole room changes when he's there because, you know, he's the guy. And But clearly he and Shepard have been friends. And, uh, and there's a pool table at Shepard's house. And so Roger, I don't know who, whether he challenged someone to a game of pool or someone challenged him, but he was playing a game of pool against one of the longtime reporters and anchors at Fox News Channel, somebody who was a very well-known good pool player who happened to magically not play so well that <gasps> night. Did he throw it? Oh yes, shockingly. But it was just a trip, just like seeing him. He's like this squat little hedgehog of a man right. that's so <laughs> powerful and so feared and revered by others. It was just, it was strange being in that situation, in that presence. And then Chris and I went home, I don't even know what time it was, like, you know, two o'clock in the morning and everyone was still partying all night. And then it was announced like early the next day that Saddam Hussein had been captured and people like left from Shepard's party to go straight to Fox News Channel to go mm-hmm. get live on air mm-hmm. to go report that. But, but people had, you know, really varying feelings about Roger Ailes there. People were either fiercely loyal to him and thought he was great or they recognized him for who he was but knew that he was powerful and they had to keep their mouth shut and toe the line to keep their jobs. And anyway, it's interesting. Place. Yeah, I found it an interesting documentary. And, you know, you figure a guy like that, I mean, you don't get to that level without having some level of charisma, Right. And, you know, I, I mean, look, I'll be cynical. You know, there's even with Shep Smith that some of the other folks that are crying on air about him, I'm like crocodile tears. Like I'm no. just, that, no, I, well, but that's right. I mean, that's admittedly my own bias towards it. Cause I'm just thinking that good. That guy's dead. Um, Why would Shepard pretend to cry on air? 
Uh, or at least, or maybe something akin to Stockholm Syndrome. I'm, I'm, I'm sure right. there like, are people whose careers he helped, who think he's sure. a nice guy, right. who dudes who didn't have to worry about him being all grabby with them. Right. Uh, and I'm sure there are political operatives who thought he was a swell dude and he was like probably nice to his pets or whatever. You know, like nobody is 100 percent just you know a, a total monster, evil or good. But I will say that I haven't seen this movie yet. I, I plan to. Uh, he has single-handedly done so much damage to this country. It's not even funny. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And and that lives on long after his death. I mean, right. even more so. I mean, in terms of the connection between Fox News Channel and, and, you know, this particular presidency. I mean, just today, Trump nominated Heather Nauert, uh, you know, who a former Fox News reporter, to be the, the U.S. ambassador to the United the Nations. Oh, my God. She has no experience at all, so it just further shows the connection there. Well, anyway, yeah, it's all insidious and it's all bad, but yeah. it's, it's a fascinating movie. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I would watch, I would want to get, like, there's hints of this talking to Glenn Beck, and, like, Glenn Beck's talking about, like, you know, you're trying to make a change, and then you start to realize you're doing more damage, and there's hints of something with Beck that's like, I want to see that documentary. Yeah, Glenn, I, there's a lot of Glenn Beck, there's a lot of David Schuster, there's a there, lot of Alison Camerata. But there's a lot of Glenn it. Beck like yeah. definitely like starting to realize like, oh, maybe I was not doing the thing I thought I was doing. Uh, Glenn Beck's company just merged with no, no, the network that carries Gavin McKinnon, no, no, so I, I don't want to hear from him. I hear ya. But. He's introspective, I, I will right. say. Alright, so I'm saying eight. Uh, yeah, I, what did I give it? 8.5. 8.5, an extra five because Ailes is dead. All right, 8, 8.3. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. 8. If we were still 3 on video, I'd get savaged for that. Is our number 85% on the tomato meter. And then let me really it's quickly... getting extra points on the tomato meter because Ailes is dead. Let me really quickly talk about um, a documentary about a good person who is dead, and that's Aretha Franklin. This is great film. It's not good that she's dead. No, no, no. No, a person who was good, comma, who who was good, who also is dead, comma. Okay. <laughs> Let's be clear. Don't end that sentence with a comma. There's a really great documentary that is at least playing in New York and L.A. Has it gotten distribution it, it's get, yet? It's getting an award. It, it does have distribution. It's getting an awards run right now, and it's going to be popping up more in 2019, sort of like Bathtubs Over Broadway, which Matt and I talked about last week. Uh, yeah, this has been a, a, a long... A long-shelled, long-awaited documentary. Right. So it's called Amazing Grace, and it is Sidney Pollack's documentation of the two days Aretha Franklin spent recording this now very, very famous, very you know, millions and millions of copies sold um, album, gospel album that she recorded at the New Bethel Baptist Church in Watts here in L.A. in January of 1972. And it's pretty bare bones as far as the way it's shot. I mean, Sidney Pollack knows enough to just let the camera go and just let her be her and let the choir swell behind her. Apparently he didn't know enough to have a clapper board, and so that's why they had a hard time syncing the music to the image, and that's why we haven't seen this for so long. Because... I was going to say, tell, tell the story of the background of this. Yeah, so apparently yeah, he, he shot this, this, this performance doc, basically, but did not... They didn't do the, you know, at the beginning, you know, so that they could sync up the, 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 the image and the sound. And so they never quite were able to nail that. And then a couple of years ago, long after Pollock had died, they were going to premiere this film at Telluride. And Aretha Franklin sued. They got an injunction had them to, to stop, you know, uh, the, the screening. And uh, it wasn't until then after she died that, I guess, I don't know if it's Pollock's estate or whoever... Or the record label, yeah, whoever, he's dead too. <laughs> whoever owns the film, negotiated. Also, out we're with, not happy about him being. With, uh, yes, him I met uh, <laughs> with Aretha Franklin's estate, and so now this film is making its way out to the world. It's called Amazing Grace, yeah, and it is pretty short. It's only like well, maybe it's two hours long, but it's it is breathtaking just to see her. I mean, January of 1972 is youthful, vibrant, exciting Aretha. I think we think of her so much now in terms of her being infirm for so many years toward the end of her life. And here, I mean, she's at the absolute top of her game. And she could have done this album anywhere, but she chose to go and do it in L.A. And, you know, the crowd is, of course, rapturous and totally with her. Among the people in the crowd is Mick Jagger. 
Huh. He's just like in the crowd. Every once in a while, Sidney Pollock will cut away to him, just you know, dancing in the aisles, and they don't bring him up on stage or anything. But her father, the uh, you know esteemed pastor C. L. Franklin, is in it. The Reverend James Cleveland, whose church this was, he is he is in it too. And it's just a, a great showcase for the pure power of her voice. And of course, gospel music meant so much to her because it's what she was raised in. I mean, she was raised in the church singing these songs. And so if you love her music, if you love gospel, if you just love film and have heard about this and you're curious to know how this thing turned out, Amazing Grace is out there somewhere. I would give it a 9.4. Just Ooh. see it. Just Is it 100%? I mean, just it just you should just see I it. I am dying to see it. My uh, my screener link did not work. I was very disappointed. Yeah. So. It's very intimate. I mean, you can see the beads of sweat on her forehead mm. and uh the her, and you, there's there's no like interview with her explaining why she's doing this. There's no background, there's no behind the scenes, there's no like you know, drive, like, driving in the car to get to the church. There's it, none of that. It's like stop making sense. It's just the performance. It, it, it is. It is. Yes. Um, and very little chit chat. There's a little bit of chit chat from the the reverend just explaining. You know, hey, this is a, a movie we're making here. So if we ask you to say Amen again, you got to mm-hmm. do it with the same enthusiasm you did it the first time, or <laughs> whatever. So it's, it's it's a lot of fun. It's quite moving. So Amazing Grace, go see that. Find it wherever you can. I would assume it's going to be streaming somewhere at some point in time. Probably so. So please see that when it comes toward you. Finally, let's do Happy as Lazaro, an Italian film that is getting some awards buzz as a possible Oscar contender. Is this is this Italy's submission? I don't know. Anyway, I I'll look that so. up. Why don't you describe it, please? And I'll uh, look that up. Sure. It did win the Best Screenplay Award this year at Cannes. It is written and directed by Alice Rohrbacher. And uh, it opens with a group of peasants in Italy who are working the land. And, um, you know, it's one of those situations where, uh, you know, they just they work and work and work for the Marchesa who owns the land. And then, they, you know, every month they're told, oh, well, you still owe this money for, you know, these repairs and, you know, these chickens dying and blah, blah, blah. So they're it's basically slave labor. Like there are these indentured servants. Um, and uh, the Marchesa has a son uh, who is a bit of a wastrel, and he strikes up a friendship with Lazaro, who is one of the peasants, who is uh, kind of naive and, and you know, very open-hearted and very sweet and kind. And uh, even though the, the, the Marchesa's son is sort of taking advantage of his good nature, like, you know, Lazaro is happy to be of help and to, you know, uh, uh, do things for the, the, the son and help him out with things. Um, and then a thing happens <laughs> and we're not going to go into the thing that happens, but it, 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 it's a bit of a surprise and it, it sort of shifts the tone of the film. Uh, but Lazaro remains no matter what happens, very sweet and very kind and gentle. And, um, on the one hand, the movie sort of explores like what a saint might be like if we met one, you know, because he just seems like he is one. He's just, he seems in tune with nature. He seems like, you know, he's willing to make sacrifices to, on behalf of other people. He's just, he's kind and open and present. Um, and then on the other hand, this is also a movie about how the working class will exploit the laborers to every last drop of their blood if given the opportunity. Yeah, it's a, it's a, Really rich sense of place that Alice Rohrbacher creates here. It reminded me a lot of Asiambra. Sure, yeah. Which was I'm... also a lot of non-actors right. in a very, very stripped down, very antiquated rural setting. People just surviving. I was thinking about 1900. I don't think I ever saw that. From the recently departed Bernardo Bertolucci. Oh, I never saw that. Uh, which deals with the, the peasants and the landowners mm-hmm. uh, on the eve of World War II. Adriano Tardiolo plays, is it Lazaro? Is it Lazaro? Can't remember. Anyway. Lazaro Lazaro. Lazaro. So he's, um, yeah, he has this wonderful face. He has this like Chaplin-esque kind of silent movie star face. There's this openness to him and this sweetness and there's such an expressive nature to his eyes. Um, He is, yeah, he is the constant here despite whatever upheaval goes on in the land with the workers, the way it changes throughout the course of time. Um, he is sort of this ethereal and yet grounded force for the film and you can't stop watching him. And yeah, it, it does, um, it does change. 
Yeah, and the movie sort of the movie, the the movie sort of makes the case that like the specifics of the exploitation of the working class may change, but the results are the same. Yeah, uh, and the squalor is quite vivid. Like yeah. the the squalor may take place in the city versus the country, but it's still squalor. Yeah, mm-hmm. like like living moment to moment, trying to figure out how to eat. Yeah, but it's never preachy or heavy handed in the way it depicts these people and their resourcefulness. Yeah, I mean, it's never depressing. Like, you know, the, these people are making the best of a bad situation and they are, they are very resourceful. Uh, but at the same time, the movie doesn't sort of sentimentalize the fact that, that this is the position that they're put in. Yeah, you just have to, you have to go with it. And I, I believe that she lays the groundwork enough that you can go with it without a whole lot of effort. You're, yes. you're in and you're transfixed and you want to know what's going to happen next. So um, we're, we're being very, very vague intentionally yeah. here. And just frankly, I'm, I'm still sort of work sorting out in my head what exactly happened in this movie and why. Um, but I am thinking about it a lot, which yeah. is a good sign. And, and I, I really love the performance. And I love the way it looks, and and I love the the, the what she's getting at with all of this. Yeah, there's a, a very tactile kind of nature to the landscape and the people and their daily lives and what they wear and what they eat and how they eat it and all that. So it's really right. good. Um, I'm saying eight point two. Uh, I'm saying eight. All right, our number is an eight point one. Is at ninety percent on the tomato meter, and it's streaming on Netflix, so you can watch it right now. And you should, yeah. So let us go back and just do a quick recap on what we talked about. We talked about a lot of films today. Mary Queen of Scots, we gave an eight point one. Ben is back, seven point three. Vox Lux, seven point eight. The Roger Ailes documentary, Divide and Conquer, we give an 8.3. And that one's streaming. Is it? it, it? In addition to theatrically. Okay. Um, The Aretha Franklin documentary, Amazing Grace, is a 9.4 from me. And then Alonzo and I gave Happy as Lazaro, Lazaro. I just watched it like two days ago and I can't remember. (laughs) I want to say it's Lazaro. I watched Um, it last night. 8.1. Pardon me. Talk for a second. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, again, these are mostly limited releases. But, again, you can't see Happy as Lazaro on uh, Netflix. And you can watch the Roger Ailes doc on iTunes and Amazon and yeah. places where you get your VOD films. And celebrate that he's dead. Exactly. He's still dead. Uh, Sorry about that. Right. So, and then next week is pretty packed. Next week is um, Spider-Verse. Yes. Which so we've all seen. And what else is next week? Uh, oh, shit. The Mule. The Mule, yeah. The, the mule, mule and the new Lars von Trier, which I'm going to make myself see because I'm a professional. <laughs> go and, ahead. Good on you. And uh, Mortal Engines. Which we're all going to make ourselves go see. Yes. Which, uh, you know, I, I know the review's been mixed, but Bibbs loved it. Like, oh, Fighting go, cities, come on. You could read his review in the rap. He says it's like, it's like stuff you've never seen before. Oh, and If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, If Beale Street Could Talk is great. So I'm yeah. excited to talk about that yeah, with yeah, you yeah. guys. So it's a very, very busy week of, uh, of good stuff. So thank you all for sticking with us. Sabrina, thank you for being a good girl. And, uh, you know, we are not yet on Apple Podcasts. We are we're going to have lots of exciting announcements about this show and what's happening with it in the new year. But in the meantime, you can get this program off of Christie's uh, po- uh, website in your podcatcher by entering HTTP colon slash slash um, com slash feed into uh, Apple Podcasts or Podbean or whatever your podcatcher is and uh, will uh, automatically update as soon as a new episode drops. Great. Yay. Thanks. Until next time. Bye. Bye.